Have a seat. I'm going to get my friend Danny Martin to pray for me today. Pentecostal. Pentecostal. Well, how, how, many, how many liked his rendition of Power in the Blood today? It was pretty good, eh? You know, it's kind of hard, you know, to embrace grief and loss and to let go of the Pentecostal version, but I think that version might help me do it. So thanks, Danny. <laughs> He's going to just pray for the, our teaching time. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for Gordy. We thank you for our shepherd. Father, we thank you for the heart that he has, God. So, Father, just as you pour into his heart, just, just let us see the, the love of the Father, God. As you love us, God, and you love the children, Lord, just, just cause us, Lord, to see in light, God, what you believe about children. So God, we just we thank you for the God that you are, the loving Father that you are. Just let it come through, God, and let us see us in your light, God, as your children, Lord. So bless Gordy, just, just let him be your oracle today in everything that he says, God. Pour out your heart through him. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Danny. Awesome. Well, I think first of all, we'll uh, look at our text. And um, it's always good to start with scripture. And uh, I want to look today, uh, if you're just joining us, we've been going through a series for October, November on the upside down kingdom and God's heart for children. And the whole um, concept of being an intergenerational community that reflects the heart of God. Um, and uh, I, I think this will be the seventh or sixth message. Uh, Dean taught a couple weeks ago on when God needed a child. Looked at different uh, examples in scripture and history uh, when God needed a child and used the child powerfully. And, uh, and Joanna next week, who I think is very gifted, in interacting with children, as I've watched her. She's just a joy to watch uh, with, with kids, uh, as is are others of you remarkable. My wife's amazing uh, with children. But Joanna's going to be teaching next Sunday. Uh, Kathleen and I are at national team meetings uh, this coming week uh, in Toronto. So we'll be away next Sunday, but be back with you um, for the David Roos weekend. Um, the, uh, Kirsten Pontalti gets back today from Oxford. Uh, so that's exciting. So the whole family is, of course, there, meeting her at the airport today. And we're going to try to nail her foot to the ground for a while. Yeah. So Deuteronomy, uh, because this is on a podcast, I'll read it and just follow along with me. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children, and their children. How many generations is that? There you go again, eh? So that you, your children, and their children, after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. 
down to verse 3. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. How many get the sense that God is kind of for us as we, as we read these things? He, he wants us to do well. He wants us to be well. Uh, of course there's suffering. Of course there's cost in, in all of this. But, but, but the, he, he, his end in mind for us is good and blessed. Verse 4. Let's all read this one together. Verses, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So without going any further, the first uh, point in the art of generation, intergenerational worship is be a worshiper. It starts with you. It starts with me. Right? It starts with us being a people of worship. And that is transmitted powerfully to the next generation when we live that out. Verse 6, these commands that I give you today and are, on, are to be on your hearts. Now, I love this word the NIV gives here for verse 7. Impress them on your children. We started out this series by saying, I quoted the fellow uh, that founded Compassion International. His name has just slipped my mind uh, right now. Uh, but he talked about children being like wet cement. That they are, they're at a season in their life where they're impressionable. And God says, don't be passive about that. Don't be passive about that season. Impress these things on your children. How? Well, you talk about them. How many know conversations are good? Talk about them. When? Well, at church for two hours on Sunday. Is that what it says? When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, or nowadays, when you're in your car, or when you are in, on transit, or if you're 70% of this church, when you walk along the road, <laughs> uh, when you lie down, and when you get up, so bedtime and morning time. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead and wear them around your neck. That's what Santa's had a hold of today. Had one of these symbols around her grabbing a hold of it. And I, I felt it was more than just Ian and Corey, if I can say this. I felt it was more than just her looking for something to handle. Of course, that was happening. I, I felt something spiritual. She was grabbing my cross. I was also beginning to lose my breath, but that's all right. <laughs> so tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When, when people walk into your house, I'm not asking for cheesy Christian art, but do people know who you belong to when, you walk, when they walk into your house? Is, is, is the, the space that you live in, is there an impressing on children as to what your values are, what's important to you. So, the result, in the future, when your children ask you what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws 
the Lord our God has commanded you. And, and last week we talked about how that these stipulations, decrees, and laws included ritual. It included Passover. It included activity, tactile. It, it, it involved uh, repetition and uh, corporate bodily doing things together. It wasn't just kind of this zone out spirituality transcendent thing. It was very physical and very active that they did. So they will ask you, why are you doing that? Why, are you, why did you, you, sa you slaughter that lamb that way and spill his blood? And why are we having, the, you know, why are we doing these things with the Passover? Tell him, verse 21, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Verse 22, before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. I was talking about our homestay last week has absolutely no biblical uh, knowledge at all. It's, it confesses no faith. But she's been engaging in our family rituals of lighting the candle, of prayer, on Friday night, I was praying. <laughs> I was praying over the meal and prayed for her, prayed for Kathleen. And, and she started praying. She said, and Lord, bless Gordy. <laughs> it was so sweet. But she knows, the, she knows the, the Passover story better than I do. You know why? Because she's watched the Prince of Egypt. And there's so, there's so many ways that God has continued to get the message out. You know, through the imagination, through story. But he brought us out to bring us and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. Verse 24, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he's commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Not so much about the performance, but about the heart that says, Lord, we love you and we want to follow you. So, in our text, God declares that intergenerational worship is not to be two hours on a Sunday morning. And I think I want to say that right off the top, that it's to be a way of life. It's to be when you get up and when you lie down, when you sit in your house, when you go out. And we are to impress that on our children. But I want to ask the question. Why do we take the most impressionable time, perhaps, that we have, this window of time that we have, as churches and often separate our kids from beginning to end? There are many churches you walk into, from the moment you arrive, you drop them off and you won't see them until you, until you graduate. <laughs> I, I didn't mean that, but almost. And, and I go, why? Why do we do that? Like, I think sometimes we should have kids sit through the sermon. I think we, sh we need to be more intentional about that. But why, why do we separate kids? Why do we have this daycare mentality? I'm not putting down daycares, but you know that idea of, of separating age brackets and, and from beginning to end in, in churches. Why do we do that? Well, there are a lot of good reasons against the backdrop of our culture. They make noise. They're restless. They have short attention spans. They don't understand what's going on. They understand a lot more than you realize. 
Parents don't want to be bothered. After all, we have them 24-7 almost the rest of the week. Can't we have at least a few minutes of peace? Amen. I heard an amen over here. Do I hear another amen? They bother other adults. They bother the pastor, the worship leader. They play the tambourine out of time. They take up seats. With Strathcona with us the last few months, there have been times we haven't had any seats in this place. And our kids, they're the culprits. Because when I go to do kids' blessing and, and, and dismiss them and we have the sermon, the place is half empty. 40%. Yeah. Amazing. So there's lots of good reasons maybe to completely separate the kids from our culture's point of view. So why have intergenerational worship? Why, why bother? Why try? Why work so hard to, to do what we've done today where probably two-thirds of our time will have been intergenerational, at least physically. I think it is still intergenerational, by the way, right now, and I'll talk about that. But I think the, the, the answer to that question is, is found in why we worship in the first place. Why do we worship? And, and when I say worship, I mean, why do we take the time and effort on Sunday of all days in the week to get up, get our butts out of the house, into the car or into the transit or walk <laughs> or take the taxi or whatever we do to get here? Why do we go to all the trouble? Why bother? Steve's wondering. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> Sometimes, right? <laughs> Sometimes, you know? And, and, and uh, what did Wimber say? The best family fights always happen on the way to church. Isn't that the way it happens? You're, you're bearing witness to that, brother. Okay. <laughs> All right. Do I have a witness? <laughs> uh, you had three today. Oh, wow. Okay. That's the record. Um <laughs> We should have that in our annals somewhere. Um, but um, the, the fact of the matter is we do come together corporately because we believe that there is, there is an aspect of encountering God that occurs corporately that happens in no other way. As much as I love encountering God at Lynn Canyon, I love encountering God where there are no tree, or no traffic and no sirens, but just trees and water and waterfalls and Cascadia, right? I love that. But there, I, I find that there is something about God's character in his heart that I'm missing when I come together with you. And, and you know, that part of it can be challenging sometimes. You know, we have to put up with each other when we come together. But we know that there's something that happens with worship, and I want to sum it up as spiritual formation. Now, I know that sounds a bit utilitarian. Obviously, we worship God because it's right. He's worthy. We've heard all that. We know all that. But what happens as a result is we are formed. We are impressed. We are shaped. Paul said uh, an interesting wording, as we behold him, we reflect him. 2 Corinthians 3. As we behold him, we reflect him. We become like him. The fact of the matter is you and I become like what we worship. The psalmist says that over and over again. The reason you're becoming stupid and deaf and dumb is that's what you're worshiping. The psalmist said that. That wasn't me. I don't apologize for saying that. The reason you're stupid, deaf, and dumb is because of what you're worshiping. 
the Bible, right? Um, so, so we become what we worship. And we become like, uh, through, through word and song and ritual, as we engage our, in our children in worship, they become like God too. And they disciple us because they show us something about God. I often see our kids worshiping and I'll, I will actually turn my eyes and watch them because there's grace coming to them, to me. And I felt that from Sanez today as I was held, holding her. You thought I was just being a good pastor. No, I was being selfish. I was just taking the grace of God. Uh, well, not just being selfish, but, um, but I was receiving from her. We receive from God. Ivy Beckwith, who wrote uh, uh, Spiritual... Uh, spiritual transformation of children said once we accept and understand the idea that worship with others of all generations is an act of spiritual formation we have a foundation for both understanding and creating the elements of worship and a context for developing worship experiences that reflect the values of our faith community so in review uh, over the last few weeks we've talked about God being intergenerational and that the, the community is to have children in the midst. Jesus brought a child into the midst of them when the disciples said, what is greatness in the kingdom of heaven? And he said, this is the kingdom. And he brought a child right into the midst. And he said, unless you become like this child, you can't even get in. And whoever welcomes one of these children is great in the kingdom of heaven and becomes like them. Uh, it results in mutual discipleship. And it helps us tap into this sign that C.S. Lewis talked about, this cry and this longing and this desire that children have, that we all have for God, that we often misplace by looking for things in this world, in this life, to satisfy, or we try to suppress them. And our children have that. And if we, if we give them shorter goals than the goal of finding their homeland in God through imagination, story, and ritual, we're selling them short. And so that is our job as a community with parents together as a team, is through imagination, story, and ritual to pass on the story. What story? The story that God has never given up on his intention to put this world right, but he has chosen to not do this apart from us. We are all in that story. Or we're called to it. We're not necessarily living that story. Because I think that every day, every week, through story, through ritual, through, through um, uh, imagination, through communion, through coming together, breaking bread, by daily devotional life, by encouraging one another daily, we remind ourselves of the story. A spiritual director told one of his directories who was tempted to go into an affair, he said... That's not your story. That's the wrong story. So ritual and all of these things help us remember the story we're in. So how is intergenerational worship formative? First of all, intergenerational worship is formative because it's inconvenient. Woohoo! How many of you notice it's rather inconvenient to get up on a Sunday morning? For some of you, it's your only day of rest, right, Dean? Our worship time falls right in the middle of the morning, which effectively cuts your day right in half. You have to get out of bed, get the kids up, eat, change, bath, get them out the door. You have to take the car, transit, or walk. And yet you are practicing by doing that. That is an act of worship. 
It is a critical value that you reflect. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as Hebrews wrote, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As Woody Allen said, 95% of life is just showing up, right? What do we teach our children when we do this? What do we teach our children when we fight for that? As I fought for that daily meal, I talked about ritual last week in our family life when our teens were going boing, 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 boing all over the world and all over the, all over the city. And the last thing that, that I could find to sustain us as a family was I fought for that daily supper meal. I fought for that. It was a ritual. And there was open space there, but I fought for that. And that's kind of what... When we gather together, it's as a family, it's, it's, our, it's that meal that keeps us a family. Really, not just in name, not just in theological reality, which is, what the hell is that? Excuse my language. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we, we want this to be tangible and physical. Um, we show our children that loving God often means inconveniencing ourselves for the sake of love. When we put God's values before our wants, we are spiritually formed. We're teaching them to pray, Lord, help me to want what I need and help me not to need what I want. But by contrast, often we try to make worship more convenient. I still remember when we were over at Grace Chinese Mennonite Church. If you were going to come to our church, you had to want to. <laughs> no parking, um, no sign, steep set of stairs. I mean, it was just hard to get there, right? Reminded me of those old altars that God told the children of Israel to build in the Old Testament. He said, don't, don't shine them up. Just give them a dirty, dusty old altar. What is that about? It reminds me of people today around the world, in China and other parts of the world. They're meeting today in the middle of the forest. They're meeting in a cave. But you know what we used to say in Calgary? We used to say, come to our church. We had a big fancy ad in the Calgary Herald that said, 1,100 seats cushioned in an air-conditioned atmosphere with lots of parking. <laughs> and you can come in anonymously. Nobody knows you're coming. Nobody knows you're leaving. Oh, boy, doesn't that really put the cross before people? Doesn't that really teach them how to follow Jesus? God help us. Now, I'm not saying deliberately make it hard. I'm not saying that go out of our way to, you know, we, we try to tell you, you know, we can be found. <laughs> but, boy, have we ever lost that sense. And I think when, when it costs you something, you're telling children that I value this. I value. The second thing is identification. I remember when I was a bachelor and teenager, I, we lived about six blocks away from my dad's Pentecostal church, which he'd built up in High Prairie, Alberta. You know where that is, Terry? High Prairie, Alberta. Woohoo. Knowing the billions of people around the world is where? <laughs> And uh, that's where my dad built the second of his first, uh, second of two Pentecostal building churches. Uh, he built the other one in Vulcan, Alberta, which is the Star Trek capital of the world today. I want you to know that. But he, Sunday morning I had to walk because he'd go early and there was no car. 
The best thing for a teenager is to be able to go to church six blocks in the car and duck when your friends are walking by, right? But I had to walk. So I literally, I felt like I was on this espionage mission to get to, to, get to the church six blocks away, right? And poof, you know, I arrived and nobody would seen me, right? It was just, that was my mission. Well, when I gave my life to God at 16 years of age, I got fired up. And I, my parents gave me this big black Finnis Jennings Dake Bible. Does any of you remember those? But big, it was King James. There was more notes than there was Bible in that thing. It was unbelievable. I mean, he had all the, the angels that, that went into this, the, the daughters of men, you know, in, <laughs> in uh, Genesis 6. He had that all figured out, Mark. He had that all figured out. I mean, it was unbelievable. He had it all figured out, the six-day creation. There was more notes in that thing. But it, it didn't matter. What mattered to me is it was big. It was a big Bible, big black Bible. And I remember when I got fired up for God, I would walk to church. I was so excited. I carried that great big Bible. And I was just hoping one of my friends would say, hey, where are you going? Well, they wouldn't have to ask where I was going with that big Bible. But, but why are you going, you know? So it, it totally changed. Well, all of that to say that there is something about teaching our children to identify with the people of God, to visibly go to church, is powerful. Jesus said, I don't know why we so much apologize for what Jesus said. We've got to stop doing that. He said, whoever is ashamed of me, of them I will be ashamed before the Father and his holy angels. And you know what we usually do nowadays? We go, oh, you know, but God isn't into shame. And, you know, he's not, he, did, he didn't really mean that literally. And I, I'm sorry, awkward. Let's just leave it there. You're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. End of argument. So children who see their parents valuing the worship community will likely value the worship community themselves. And I've seen a direct correlation. You be a worshiper, you're passionate about the family of God, your kids will be. It's just, there, there's just, there's a parallel there. Incredible. I've seen it over and over again. Thirdly, there's an aspect of ritual, as, and this kind of fits into what we talked about last week, about spiritual formation through our rituals as we read the scriptures, as we... As we as we sing, we, you know what we were doing today as we were singing? We were telling the story. Song is so powerful. C.S. Lewis said music is one of the highest forms of imagination. And music is so powerful. Can you imagine a world without music? Oh, man. So that's why music is such an important part of worship. It's not the only way we worship. But it's so powerful as we read scriptures, as we tell the story, as the story is being told right now. Uh, it's so critical. And the word liturgy um, comes from the Greek word liturgio, which means the work of the people. And as I said at the beginning of the service, often when we think of liturgy, we think of a show. We think of some guy up front, you know, putting off some smoke and incense and saying a few words, and we kind of go through the ritual, go through the liturgy. Liturgy literally means the work of the people. We come together to do God's work. When we say service, we're not talking about some kind of consumeristic idea of where we come to receive, we come to give. Now, don't get me wrong, we all need to receive too. 
We all, there's an inter interchange, of course. But we're teaching our children, and already our preteens are involved, we're teaching them to begin on every second Sunday to serve in various ways, to apprentice. And our teens are well into that already, of course. The fourth thing is that it slows us down. There's a different pace uh, that when we come to church. You can't tell, you know, you can't say to that preacher, would you hurry up? Would you, would you make your point? Well, you could, but kind of awkward, right? Uh, socially, right? And, and, and we have children around us, and it, 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 you know, we turn off our gadgets, usually. <clears throat> um, we have to practice focus and concentration because reflection requires that we slow down. One time when I was reading the passage in the Old Testament where uh, the, uh, the Israelis were leaving exile. It was kind of the second exodus, it's called, in the Bible. The first was, of course, coming out of Egypt. The second exodus was when they left uh, Persia and Babylon and those places that they had been deported, and they returned to Jerusalem. And I was reading kind of just casually through Ezra, and, and I, I read that the time that it took them to get from, from their place of exile to uh, Jerusalem took about six months, it took about uh, five months longer than it should have. The actual time that it took to get was, was way longer. And as I began to study it and look at the background, I found out the reason why. They didn't go as the crow flies. You know that phrase, Danny. Go as the crow flies, right? They didn't go that route. They took the wheelchair accessible route. They took the route that was good for seniors. Woohoo! And children. So they didn't do mountain climbing. They didn't do, they, they, they took the slow route. And, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking of God's pace. God's pace is child friendly. It's wheelchair accessible. It works for everybody. It's inclusive. But it takes way longer and we have to slow down. The wheels of the bus go round and round. In the vineyard, very slowly. <laughs> All right. The fifth thing we impress on children by, by uh, intergenerational worship is a, a, the practice of hospitality and welcome. Is there any better place to embrace the person different than Eastside Vineyard on Sunday morning? I mean, we have it all, right? People that are different than us. Ethnic difference, social differences, the transgendered. We have uh, people from every background and most significantly, age difference. How good are we are welco at welcoming children? Do we say hi to their parents when they walk in, but they go right underneath our vision and we miss them? Remember, folks, Jesus' warnings to not despise or ignore one of these little ones. Don't offend them. Do we know their names? Do we know their middle names? What about their birthdays? Our hospitality muscles are expanded when we are compelled to be hospitable to children because we allow, as a community, for their natural energy and unrestrained curiosity. We are compelled to be hospitable to creatures who are very different than us in terms of social social boundaries and attentions. 
spans. And it, so it teaches us to, to stop and to, to put others before us. It's, a, it's spiritual formation. Last week I mentioned Charles Williams who found that the stoplights in London, or are they go lights? I don't know, the stoplights. Mark will know, yeah. But he, he found the stoplights were an opportunity to put others before yourself. You stop and you let others go. My life for yours is the key to hospitality. When we love our neighbors as ourselves, we grow spiritually. It's a spiritual discipline when you're sitting in the hot tub and you haven't had a jet for five minutes and you're starting to lose consciousness. <laughs> that a jet frees up and you actually say to someone else who got there after you, do you want it? Why? Well, maybe they're a senior. Maybe the Holy Spirit's just telling you to show kindness. I don't know. But it's a spiritual discipline to put others before ourselves. And we have that opportunity when we come together. And you know what? It's just a lot harder than when you're out at Lynn Canyon hugging a tree. As much as I love the trees. And finally, generosity. An opportunity to practice generosity is when we come together through giving. It's a chance for the church to learn, the children to learn the 10-100 rule, that the first 10% of our income is given to God, and the, the last 90% is his too, but he lets to get us keep it and be stewards of that. And that his promises, as we give him the first 10%, is that he will actually bless the 90% more than if we'd have kept the 100%. And I've always lived this way. My, my parents, I used to watch them as a child, write the check, put it on the cupboard, get it ready for church. And it impressed me. The value of giving. And uh, Ivy Beckwith writes that the ritual of worship through giving every Sunday is a slap in the face at every service we attend. It's a slap in our greedy faces. <laughs> I'm speaking, I'm putting myself in that category. And I'm all for technology, and I love Wade's little scan codes, and I love the phone thing, and I love the PayPal. But something is lost, and, and, and I'm quoting John Westerhoff when I say this, something is lost with automated giving because we lose that ritual of physically actually putting something in the offering on Sunday. So what he recommends is go ahead and do the PayPal, but give some more when you come. <laughs> I like that. I didn't like this part so much. He says, he says the thing that really bugs him is that often pastors and clergy often never have the, pay, the plate passed to them. And if they do, they rarely drop anything in it. It's so important to model giving. Yeah, I thought maybe I could put my seat back up in there, get a nice high back chair, and sit up there, and the offering plate could miss me. Remember the Pope hat that Alec drew on me that one time? That was, yeah. No, I mean, we got to model it, eh? So there's a power in, in generosity. How are we doing here? We've got four more minutes. So children worship in spiritual practices. First of all, we, we try to be uh, visual, tactile, and kinesthetic. Come and explain those <laughs> words, because I can hardly pronounce them, Kathleen. <laughs> but Kathleen is, is amazing in this. Well, that's why, I, anyway, I'm an ESL teacher. I have been for 20 years, and before that, I won't tell you how many other years I taught. But uh, tactile is simply, and that's why I'm, Gordy's asked me, because I'm very, very passionate about interactive communication. Tactile is when you feel touch. So you can just basically, I love tactility. I have, this is a wool bouquet 
So I would touch this and, and get a greater sense of thrill than even touching my husband because his, it's just soft and not much feel to it. <laughs> so, and I'll get some prayer after. Kinesthetic, now focus guys. Kinesthetic is when you are moving. Okay? So traditionally, education emphasizes seeing, i.e. reading, or watching TV or video, or hearing, listening, as in when someone is lecturing. So basically, I'm my husband's bane sometimes, and I say, honey, we have to get the people involved, right? You're really involved right now, aren't you? You're smiling. <laughs> You're frowning. So kinesthetic is apparently, traditionally, 5% of the learners, if you study the research, 5%. Now, that is in dispute uh, um, since, you know, the Say 70s. That again. Can you explain that again? Well, traditionally, if you do research, they're saying multiple intelligence theory tells you, you know, certain parts of you guys, you tend to be more like your visual learners or you are a, you are a, uh, you, you are a fantastic auditory learner. My husband's almost memorized the whole Bible. You know, like he, he can... So exactly. some people are in, incredible. The book of they hear and they listen and they retain. Some of us, I, I'm one of these people that I'm always getting pictures. So I'm praying for people, I'm getting pictures, and I have to have the prophetic interpretation. So visual. What about the 5% apparently that... Like little boys, particularly, they can't sit still. They're always in their chair, and they're like, then the teacher's saying, "Be quiet, sit still, read your book." <laughs> and then apparently, there's girls like that too, like maybe me. <laughs> so now the research is indicating more and more. It's the combination of modalities. It's when you see, when you hear, and when you interact that your brain is actually informed. Do you understand that? So it's when you have simultaneous learning of all modalities. You are seeing, you are hearing, you are interacting with the text. I don't want to scare you, but I tend to be a bit passionate about this. But they have done research to indicate that people's brains, and I'm not talking about just the physical mass, but also the kind of groovy brain part where it's supposed to make you intelligent. You know, the grooves in your brain, the synapses and all those things that happen in your brain that gives you the groove. If you let your kid or you yourself sit in front of TV for four hours nonstop, and so garbage in, nothing comes out except garbage, you are not, your brain is actually shrinking. Oh, I have a believer. Your brain is shrinking. So this is why we have to, and you know when Jesus said little children will lead them, why do we have our kids not sitting here like you guys? Because they will go nuts. Because they ha we are interacting with our children. They are doing art. They are doing drama. They are doing, yes, they have a video portion, but they have to interact. Mm -hmm. So they will lead us also into this. I'm not going to make a big prophetic prediction, but church is going to become less and less a lecture. And more and more where we interact, not just with God and the different, you know, art and drama ways of doing it, or, but, you know, with one another. And this is what small church is all about. Did I answer that question? That's great. Thank you so much. Too much time. Kind of passionate about that. Woo, as a fire hose.
All right. Thanks, Hun. So just to wrap it up, uh, a couple more points uh, is, uh, is that, as Kathleen mentioned, we, we believe that age-appropriate worship is important as well. We recognize that, that, that people learn different at different ages, and there's developmental psychology. So, so that's why we will take the time and the effort to give space in a service, like now, where there is age-appropriate uh, learning and worship, and, and just so blessed by the parents, by the workers, by the people that have stepped up to help. Our point people uh, are, are just doing an amazing God uh, job. And, and let love guide. Um, in, and when I talk about that, people say, well, what are the rules in the art of inter intergenerational worship? You know, we have a handbook of policies and procedures, and it, the title of it is Love Protects. And it's a it's an abuse prevention policy that we have implemented in our church. And we follow that because of love. It's not because we, we really enjoy obeying a bunch of rules, but we, we, it, it, it's, it's what love does. And so in corporate worship, when the children are in, we just ask that parents and, and caregivers do the loving thing with your children. And um, use your discernment. You know, we don't want to have a bunch of heavy-handed rules, but... Use common sense. So, for example, uh, in the swimming pool at Templeton, they have a rule that a child under the age of eight, I think, has to be within arm's reach of an adult caregiver. So how would that, what would that look like in church? Well, I don't think it necessarily means that a child under eight has to be with, always within arm's reach of a parent. But the principle is, is that the child is being watched. The child is being cared for and that they're not just free to run, to run on their own without that care, without that, that attentiveness. That's, that's an important thing. We provide art and flags, but, and we allow kids to sometimes run around, but one day I noticed we, when we were having worship that it was no longer worship, it was a game of tag. And they were going, you know. And, you know, I could have got all anal about it that day, but I thought, well, I'm going to watch it, and, and then I realized it was a one-off, and it didn't happen again. If it would have continued, I'd have probably started speaking to the parents, caregivers, and saying, you know, play is children's work, and it is important, but we need to help children integrate play with worship so that they don't see play is over here and worship is over here is something different, that it's one and the same. So, so it means coaching children and always focusing them that, that it's about Jesus. It is about worshiping God in, in what we're doing. Uh, if a child squawks, makes noise in a service, I go, yay! It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite stories with my grandkids when we were dedicating our second grandchild, Annalise, in Switzerland. Samuel had been dedicated here, but Annalise came along in Switzerland. And so Samuel, when we got off the plane, he was in the two-word sentence phrase where he'd go, we got off the plane and he went, big truck. You know, that was his vocabulary. So at the baby dedication, he was with his parents and this uh, Swiss Reformed priest comes out, black robe. I mean, it was, it was freaking scary. And Samuel's with his parents and his all of a sudden, he sees this guy come out, and of course, it's all, all orderly. It's the Swiss Reformed Church. And all of a sudden, he goes, big man, big man. He just freaked right out. It was so funny. I was sitting down at the front, and just I just cracked up. 
And he was hiding behind his dad, and he refused for the rest of the service to come out from behind his dad during this service. And all of a sudden, and I all of a sudden I heard this ripple of laughter through the whole Swiss Reformed Church. There were hundreds of people in there. And I heard this, this woman said, let the children cry. She said, I just lost one of mine, and I wish I could hear her cry again. I've never forgotten that. So I don't mind a squawk. I don't mind a cry. Sometimes it can get so loud that you can't hear the sermon anymore, and you know it, it can become disruptive to others. But again, let love rule, and that's why we have the cry room, because we, you can hear the sermon through there. Uh, so it's just practical things that I think are important. So there's all kinds of scenarios. It's not about rules. It's about love. And so the rules can change if they're no longer loving and honoring our kids. So in conclusion, I've said that three times, haven't I? Uh, taking the risk to be intentional and creative about making space for intergenerational worship provides mutual formation of adults and kids aligned with the values of the upside-down kingdom. So I've, uh, I, I put that up last week. I love that so much. I just wanted to show that again because uh, that's what communion is. We just had an amazing communion time last week with our kids uh, with this in mind, that we're doing this with Jesus. And here's some of your questions. These are all in your bulletin. Uh, and you can reflect on those with your home groups. Um, looking at the six ways in point three that worship is formative, how has worship impacted you, impressed you with the values of the kingdom of God? And where do you need to grow, point two? And finally, reflect on ways that intergenerational worship could enhance these goals. And I add in your bulletin, you know, where has intergenerational uh, worship been a challenge for you? And get people to pray for you. Because um, it's important for your spiritual formation. It really is. Thank God for this church. I love this church. I love who we are and... and uh, as Joanna has often said years ago, we prayed and cried out to God for more kids. Uh, and boy, is he answering that. Praise the Lord. Well, let's stand together. Thank you for your patience today, for slowing down your pace a little bit to do all that we did. I pray that God will just bless you and, and pour that back to you. If you like pray, if, if, uh, prayer, if there's things that the Lord has spoken to you about, I'm not going to open it up for words right now because we're just past our time. People need to get their kids. But if you need prayer, uh, just uh, encourage you to come for uh, just if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you or just turn to somebody. Uh, have them pray for you on some of the issues that were touched on. Uh, the Holy Spirit has spoken to you through what is said, through even, even if it wasn't said. Maybe the Lord's just, just tugging on your heart on something. Don't rush away from that. Just let there be prayer to that. And of course, debrief in your, your small groups. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The peace of the Lord, the grace of the Lord be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a great Sunday, great Remembrance Day weekend. We'll see you next week.